All right, man. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, listen to our new theme song for a second. That's by John Page, and um, we'll have to start talking about him and uh, linking to his work in the show notes so that we can uh, drive some business to him. So, absolutely, he, also, he does my. Uh, he's done basically all of my podcast uh, music. So cool, well, dude. Well, thanks very much to him for me for that too, man. That's nice. Very good. All right, and well, welcome to the end of the empire. I'm Scott, and he's Pete. What's up, Pete? No, not much, man. I think uh, you're hosting this one tonight, man. I'm along for the ride. Yeah, I'm pretty much probably going to be this. Will probably be the Pete interview uh, of Scott and everything. So, um, yeah, big happenings this past Monday. What would um, well, where do you, where do you even want to start with this? The fact that there were people who showed up that couldn't even get in. Yeah, I mean that was a hell of a thing. Well, first of all, even before that. There are people who traveled all across the country to be there for this thing. Yeah. Um, you know, north, south, east, and west, and all over the place. People drove, people flew. There are people there. I met a guy there from Nevada. Um, and then there was a guy that was turned away, who was from Georgia. Um, the guy's name was Martin, and I'm sorry, I forgot the name of his lovely wife there. And this guy, Pete, he didn't want the shot, but he got the shot so he could come to this thing. Two shots. And then the guys examining the cards at the door, instead of doing like the perfunctory, hey, look, I did my best. He had a COVID passport. So what the hell? They looked and scrutinized and said, you are at only 13 days from your second dose. So, and the rule is you have to be 14 days out from your second dose. And the guy was like, what? And they said, sorry. That's it. Rules are rules. And wouldn't let the guy in. After him and his old lady flew in from Georgia to see the thing. Which, Martin, if you're watching, I'm sorry about that. It sucks. And and thanks for coming and for everything. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was pretty bad. Yeah. The, you, know? you know, and it's one of those things where I was staying out in Queens. And anywhere I went in Queens, they didn't ask for anything. I mean, even Long Island City, where Long Island City has become very upscale and very bougie. I went to an Italian restaurant on Tuesday. They didn't ask for anything. And um, but, you know, the couple places that I went to in Manhattan, they did. And really, honestly, at this point. After this, I don't see a reason to go back to New York for anything. I mean, it's just why? Why would I give them any? Why don't I just let them die? Why give them any money? I mean, they I think a lot of people don't realize how much they do rely on tourism. Well, how? Just stop. Stop going there. These yeah. people need to stop going there. Well, it was only my second time to the city, so I'm still like pretty impressed. You know, <laughs> country boy come to the big town, like, wow, wow, we look at all these skyscrapers and everything. Um, more than just a few of them. And I did go up to the Empire State Building and look out at the whole dang thing, man. It's the heart of the empire. It's pretty impressive, but yeah. I mean, I don't know how in the world that they can talk themselves into, you know, having policies like this or getting away with this or where the consensus is to allow them to go this far with the thing. You know how crazy it was? It was like I took like six or seven Uber rides. Only one driver was like, oh, can you wear a mask? Yeah. 
everyone else was just like, oh, we don't care. I'm just, we're just happy for the business. We're happy there's people here and everything like yeah. that, you know? But I mean, those people at that, that theater and especially at that bar, they were more, they were eager to, you know, follow the mandates and um, be good yeah. little, be, be good little privatized, quote unquote, privatized police for, you know, that's a good point. Like the guy at the bar, he really like scrutinized my ID and my passport, and made sure the names were the same, made sure my face was right. And I mean, it's not like he thought maybe I was underage. You look at all the gray in my beard. So that certainly was not it. It was like he was really checking like a TSA agent or something, pretending he's got a job to do when he's you know, a bouncer at the bar, dude. So, so let me ask you, did, um, did you have a chance to, to meet and talk and at least exchange pleasantries with Bill before the thing started? Yeah. So that was the funny thing about it, right? So I went from, you know, people being turned away at the entrance to um, I go in there. I guess Gene had already showed me around and said he wanted, I'm not exactly sure why, but at the beginning he wanted us. Oh, so we could, so we could see the comedy show. Um, he had us both sit, you know, all the way, I guess, I forget which is stage right. And uh, and in the front row there. And then, you know, once it was the comedy show was over and it's his turn to introduce us, then we're supposed to go behind the curtain there and then up the stage, the back way to the stage or whatever. So he came and introduced him and we're sitting there talking and. Uh, you know, we're just talking about the weather and housing prices and, you know, oh, you're from Austin. That's interesting. And just, you know, whatever, this kind of small talk stuff. And I was actually thinking, I, you know, he's a very affable guy, right? He he comes across as very like, you know, hi, how to, uh, nice to meet you kind of guy. Um, and so we're just talking. And I was actually thinking, like, is this wrong of me to like, <laughs> you know, let him let his guard down a little bit by like being decent to him at all right here? Because things are going to change once we get up there. And then I decided, nah, screw him, man. <laughs> I just, what am I going to do? I can't be rude to him now. Um, and cause that would one be jerky and then two, it would be, it would give away the whole game that you're in real trouble here or whatever, which he should already figure that out. And once we got up there, as soon as he started talking, I knew that he had not, just as I predicted two years ago, he never, he's so arrogant. He never even put my name into YouTube search one time to see who it was he's dealing with here at all. So he just got up there and did his platitudes and I don't think he knew it was funny. I can't remember who it was. Was asking. Oh, it's my friend John. Was asking. Yeah, this guy even knows who AntiWar.com is. Does he even does he even know who Justin is? You know, does he even know that like, <clears throat> you know, anything about, for example, the libertarian tradition of knowing the names and the numbers of these neocons and what they're up to over the last thirty years? And they're neocons like, of course, Murray Rothbard, but especially Romando and others really specialized in the neocons at a time when no one knew their the difference between them and just regular republicans for whatever reason you know so did, was he even unaware of that like did nobody tell him this is the editor of antiwar.com and did he not think oh antiwar.com i remember them you know those those buchananite right-wing you know crazy libertarians over there at the non-intervention thing who hate my guts so much no you know there's He's going to go, he's going to walk in there like it's a cable TV news interview and just, you know, spout his platitudes and 
kept the peace for 75 years. Who could argue with that? You know, and then so you, you want to talk about what you possibly think. Um, some things he said that you thought you should have addressed, like um, immediately yeah. our, our friend Ryan Dawson was was texting me going, why isn't he hitting him about Syria, about Assad gassing his own people and half oh, yeah. of, you know? No, I mean, he said that like two or maybe even three times. But so I had all my prepared, you know, stuff for the rebuttals. Plus, I was trying to take notes on all the different stuff he was saying. And then I guess, you know, frankly, my notes were just not really in order. Like I already had notes where they probably shouldn't have been yet. So then when I'm like jotting down new stuff, it's in no particular order. So then when I'm up there rebutting, I'm not going from memory of what he said. I'm looking at my page of notes going, what have I left off of the list that I still need to address here? And I think at one point I'm in the middle of talking about something else and there's total this time crunch pressure under this thing. And it takes me forever to explain anything. So I think I'm in the middle of like arguing about World War One and World War Two, And then I'm like, oh yeah, and I got to address the serious Aaron thing in a second too. Like note to self out loud in the middle of my other train of thought about Woodrow Wilson or something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but it was something like that. And then I got back to Syria and then I just argued the point because he was saying that America hadn't intervened there at all. And I was saying, yes, they did. They intervened on the side of Al Qaeda there and all that. And then, yeah, absolutely. I should have said as look, there's a chapter, in my, a sub chapter in my book called three fake sarin attacks where I claim outright this was fake, this was fake, and this was fake. All three of them, August 2013 and April 2017 and April 2018 um, in um, Ghouta, Kanshikun, and Duma. All three of the major sarin attacks that they pinned on, or so supposed sarin attacks that they pinned on Assad, all three were hoaxes. And the first was a false flag by Al-Qaeda and the Turks. The second one was evidently like an improvised, reaction to a conventional strike that caused a poison a poisonous gas cloud because of what was hit and you know different chemicals being mixed with water and different things all this Garrett Porter has written the best on it of course um and then Duma which was the ridiculous hoax at the hospital that was debunked by Robert Fisk the next day or two days later and then of course the ridiculous hoax at the apartment buildings, which was debunked by Moon of Alabama. Bernard at the Moon of Alabama blog debunked this in real time. What do you mean it came through a hole in the ceiling over there, but it's lying on a bed over there, undamaged, after punching through concrete and all that. Like it was just, it was obviously fake from the very beginning. And even though they claimed it was sarin at the beginning, they ended up backing down saying it was only chlorine, which is not even a banned chemical weapon anyway, and the, which is also a lie anyway. And then now, you know, because of WikiLeaks and Aaron Mate and the great whistleblowers at the OPCW, we know that the guys who wrote the original report didn't come to any of the crazy conclusions, the uh, you know accusatory conclusions against Assad that the um, that the final report came up with. So the whole thing is BS. And I absolutely wish I had addressed that. Also, I didn't hear him say. Someone brought up brought this up to me later. Um, but I don't remember this part, and I, I guess I need to go back and watch the thing. I, I tried to watch. I, I actually haven't gotten a chance to sit down and watch the whole thing yet. The the official produced Reason Magazine version will be published in the morning. I guess I'll sit back and watch the whole thing then. Um, but anyway, at some point, I believe he said, someone else told me that he said that, um, that um, 
America um, did nothing as Saddam waged the war against Iran in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, he did say that. that. He, yeah, he absolutely yeah. said that. Yeah. Which, which I didn't contradict him for saying that, but I did address American right. support for Saddam and his attempted regime change in Iran before he had a chance to tell that lie, I think, unless he said that in his opening statement. It wasn't his opening statement. Yeah, it was no. later. So I had already told the truth about that, and he wasn't directly debunking me and saying that I was wrong when I said that we backed Saddam. He just didn't address that. He just claimed that we didn't. But he didn't even do it in a way where he was like contradicting what I already said, because I guess he wasn't listening to me when I said that either. You know what I mean? So, but I, I wish I'd had a point to, I wish I had noticed that and had the time to to address that. Because another thing that he said, which would have been the same in the same answer, was he said Saddam Hussein, you know, in the previous decade had killed, I don't know if he used numbers, but had killed, you know, large numbers of his own people. Well, yeah, but that's a reference to the Anfal campaign against the Kurds in 1983 and 84. He's backed by the United States of America and all the way through. And which it was like 100,000 Kurds were killed in the Anfal campaign. It's an absolute atrocity. He was America's client at the time fighting the war against Iran. And Ronald Reagan didn't do anything about it. And in fact, when he resorted to using poison gas against the Kurds at, uh, against the Kurds at Halabja, they the Reaganites spun a whole lie that Iran had done it, and you know it was the uh, ex later ex neoconservative Jude Winiski, who had you know done a bunch to carry the water for that lie at the time. He was a good man later in life, but um, anyway, the whole thing was a hoax that Iran had done the thing that they spun as cover when Saddam did the Halabja massacre. And as I cite in the book, and anyone can read this at foreignpolicy.com. Shane Harris, who, you know, it's funny, Pete, I don't know if I knew this. I don't think I knew this. I think in my book, I was just smearing and slandering the guy by saying even Shane Harris, the semi-official spokesman for the national security state, because I refused to dignify him with the term journalist. I actually read somewhere that, no, he actually used to be CIA. He really did, Shane Harris. He used to be a government, or I don't know exactly CIA, I think CIA, but some kind of intelligence agent anyway. So, yeah. Semi-official spokesman, right? He's like another one of these David Ignatius types. Former spook, now conduit of spook propaganda in the media. Okay, fine. Well, so therefore then, if you like my confirmation bias, even Shane Harris reports in evenforeignpolicy.com that, yeah, this was the worst chemical warfare on the planet since World War I, and it was all America's fault. And Ronald Reagan had paid for all of that. They bought all the chemical weapons from our uh, allies, the French and the Germans, and I think the British too, certainly the French and the Germans, with American money, and they used American military satellites to give Saddam Hussein intelligence to use to target the Iranian troops in the field with sarin and Taban nerve gas, the worst nerve gas, the worst chemical warfare since World War I. Um, and that was all on the US. So for him to try to say, oh yeah, no, this is why we had to go after Saddam, because back when he still worked for us was when he had done his worst stuff. And even Iraq War One, we didn't have time to address this. Iraq War One, And man, preparing for this debate, Pete. I went and found, I, I, I knew this already, but I had flown in one eye and out the other, man. That in the article, Wolfowitz and Khalil Zad in the Weekly Standard, 1997, overthrow him. And the first sentence is, 
you know, if he just stopped at the Northern oil fields, he probably would have gotten away with it. And that's in the words of Paul Wolfowitz, who is the deputy secretary of defense for policy in the Bush senior administration, along with Zalmay Khalilzad, the ever present neocon Mandarin from the University of Chicago, who's been involved in all this stuff. I said him a hundred times in the book for his involvement in all this stuff. They both wrote that. That was that's like the very beginning of their case for let's go against Saddam Hussein. Is that if only he'd stopped at the northern oil fields like we told him to, like James Baker told him to go ahead and do, then it would have been fine. But he got too big for his britches. America's client got too big for his britches and exceeded his permission and pissed off Margaret Thatcher. And you want to deal with pissed off Margaret Thatcher, Pete? Me neither. So therefore, this will not stand. We're going to war. You know, and well, yeah, let, let's jump into um, oh, wait, one no, other thing. More. wait, wait, yeah, okay. on, on things I missed. Well, I there was one that, hang on. um, do you have the one about the Taliban and girls going to school? And no, but but thanks, I'm gonna say that in just a second. Hang on, U.S. and Iran, Iraq war, and fall campaign, Syria cams. I got that. Um, and then at the very end, this wasn't a thing that we didn't address, but um, there was the, the question that I wanted to ask him, but ask me about that in a minute. Um, one other thing that I wanted to bring up that I, or that I should have brought up, you know, wisdom of the scare, staircase thing was when he's talking about peace, keeping all the peace in Europe was that only now, finally under Joe Biden, very recently, when it's just too late because there's because we lost and there's nothing we can do about it. The Americans have finally dropped their objections to the Russians and the Germans building this natural gas pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is the greatest invention in the history of world peace, right? You want to keep the Germans and Russians from fighting each other? Let them get economically interdependent as possible, please, for the love of God, to keep these two civilizations from each other's throat, okay? The last two times they fought is the worst thing that had ever happened. Tens of millions of people slaughtered tens of millions of people i think it was what 25 30 the first time and more than 60 the second in fact i heard from an authoritative source that when they say that the the soviets lost 27 million that that's just a damn lie it was more like 40 but they could not admit how many people that they had lost so they just lied and said okay it was 27 let's just call it 27. it was 40 million that they had lost and i don't know exactly about that but I trust the guy who told me, and he sure seemed to know it for an absolute fact. So as far as, you know, that goes. And in fact, I know some historians I should follow up on that with, probably. Um, but anyway, so so this is the greatest thing ever. And yet America, in the age of Obama and Trump and early Biden, were doing everything they could to stop it. And why? Because the Texans want to sell natural gas to Germany for money. So what, man? You know, natural gas, however many dollars per cubic foot, you know, world peace priceless. Okay? Keeping Germany and Russia friends and not enemies. You can't put a dollar value on that. We're talking about the survival of the species here. Okay? And what do the Americans do? The Americans put sanctions on their allies, the Germans, and on the neutral Swiss for daring to have, for one of their engineering firms being involved in building the damn thing. 
That's the American empire keeping the peace in Europe. You know, preventing the kind of thing that keeps the Russians and Germans incentivized to keep things cool. And, you know, I don't know exactly whether Crystal has ever written about that or not, but I bet you he's bad on it. And it goes overall whether his position, which the debate wasn't about his positions on everything. The debate was about American intervention in the world and regime change in other people's countries and all of that. And his whole case is that we keep the peace in Europe. We keep the peace in Europe. We kept the peace in Europe. And there's another thing I wanted to say that I did think of, and I should have jotted down, but I probably wouldn't have had time anyway, but that Andrew Coburn, my friend, the great journalist, uh, Alexander Coburn and Patrick Coburn's brother, wrote a book in 1981, well, published in 81, called The Threat. And what it was about was about how the Soviet Union wasn't nothing, how the tanks had, you know, rusted old treads, how the soldiers had no boots, no ammo, no fuel, that if they had tried to invade Western Europe, they wouldn't have got more than a few miles into West Germany and they wouldn't have been able to continue to fight. They wouldn't have been able to, to keep up the logistics for resupply or anything for a war in Western Europe for more than a week. And that the Americans would be able to absolutely smash them without resorting to using a single atomic bomb to keep them out of Western Germany. The Red Army in Europe was a hoax, a Potemkin village, right? It was like the the Afghan army that uh, George Bush and Barack Obama built over there, that David Petraeus and H.R. McMaster built. It was for show only. And, and guess what? It was the neocons who had organized Team B under the, under the CIA, because that's what the CIA analysts were saying in the 70s, too. And the neocons, all the guys from the Committee for the Present Danger, Norman Podhoritz and Irving Kristol and all their friends came and they put out the Team B report saying that, no, the Soviet Union is 12 feet tall. And in just a few years, their economy will, will surpass ours. And listen, when we put our best sonar men on the job and they can't find the super secret silent Soviet submarines that we know are all over the oceans, all over the planet. Well, that's just the proof of how silent they are, Pete. And the more you can't hear them, the more of them they are. We think there might be as many as 12 or two dozen of them things floating around out there somewhere. And the fact that we can't find them just goes to show how awesome they are at hiding their all their great new technology. And then this is why famously, like even, you know, your mom and dad and your next door neighbor remember the cliche from back in the time that the CIA. I mean, just think about being able to say this sentence in English out loud that this is right. The CIA missed the fall of the Soviet Union. Huh? They missed the fall of the Soviet Union the, in landmass, the largest world empire you know, ever in existence. They missed it? What does that mean? That means that Robert Gates and the neocons had just spent 15 years lying about how powerful the Soviet Union was. They weren't in the business of analyzing the truth of Soviet power. And the neocons led by Norman Podhoritz, they all denounced Ronald Reagan for appeasing Gorbachev because Gorbachev is Hitler. And Ronald Reagan, who was a tough guy in his first term, sold us out and is now a weak liberal pansy who's going to get America conquered by the USSR, says Norman Podhoritz and Richard Pearl and all the hawks in the second Reagan term. And by the time 
of the election of 1988, the wall is coming down and the people of uh, um, Hungary are fleeing into Austria. And the people of East Germany are fleeing into West Berlin. I mean, it's over. On the, at the, by the time of the election of 88, the beginning of the end is on. You know, under because Reagan worked with Gorbachev and created that trust that they could do it, that they didn't need a Soviet empire to protect Russia from America anymore. It'd be all right. And they went ahead. So, I mean, these hawks are just wrong on everything. There's no way I could have fit all of this stuff in there. But that is huge. You know, it's um, and and as we talked about, you know, uh, BSing around on the sidewalk, I think after. um, Oh, because somebody was telling me they know somebody who was there at Reykjavik. And, you know, what would you ask this guy? And I'm like, I would ask him to tell me everything because this was the time that Ronald Reagan and, and Mikhail Gorbachev came within one hair, one human hair's breadth of abolishing all nukes from the face of the planet, which would have meant them agreeing to dismantle all, all of the U.S. and USSR's nuclear missiles, but also that we would do everything which would work to pressure our allies to give up all of their nukes too. And which if if America and the Soviet Union were taking the lead on that, they would absolutely be able to pressure the French and the and the British and Israelis and whoever they wanted to 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 follow suit. And and they could have done that. And they came within a hair's breadth. And the way I remember it, I don't know all of my footnotes anymore, Pete, but the way I remember the history, this is when Norman Podhoritz is attacking Reagan for appeasing Gorbachev like Neville Chamberlain appeasing Hitler and Richard Pearl was in the Defense Department at the time and pushed this whole narrative that Reagan is breaking his promise about missile, uh, you know, the anti-ballistic um, missile shield, which was a total hoax, which even to this day, you know, 30 years later, 35 years later, is um, completely inoperable, doesn't work, and could never protect the American people from a, a nuclear strike by the Russians, launching thousands of missiles at the United States. We have nothing like the capacity to shoot those missiles down um, after all of this time. But, and meanwhile, if you abolish all the nukes, then you don't need a damn defensive shield anyway, man. And so, but it was, you know, Pearl and the neocons and the Hawks led the way in pressuring Reagan to back down and refuse to sign the thing. And I gotta tell you, Pete, I've seen this footage. It's like the saddest thing that ever happened in world history ever, man, is there's footage of Ronald Reagan walking down the stairs to get into his limo and Gorbachev comes up after him chasing him and says, Mr. President, please, let's go back in there and talk about this one more time, please. And Reagan says, I'm sorry, Mr. Gorbachev, I can't break my promise to the American people. And he gets in his car and drives away. His stupid effing promise over some completely ridiculous hoax technology some sci-fi fantasy that these absolute liars had sold this, you know, Hollywood actor who, you know, couldn't tell for himself. And it's just, yeah, anyway. And again, the neocons. Yeah. You know? Talk about the, um, his comment about asking a question, would you, you know, the Taliban and, you know, how they're going to, I mean, he was just basically repeating the neoliberal uh, presses line as of recent of um, oh we they were teaching girls and you know girls were learning about gender studies and everything like that and um now now they don't how do you feel about that and you're like so <laughs> yeah <laughs> you literally well, just went 
Well, so, so, yeah, in fact, this is one of the things I did take note of when I, I rewatched part of it on the plane on the way home was, so what was going on there was this is when we we're talking about blowback and the motivation for the attack by Al Qaeda on the United States. And then he changes the subject to we're leaving Afghanistan now and the Taliban's taking back over. Do you think that they're going to provide liberty for women? And I and he, he said it like as though that's what I had just been claiming that all the Taliban ever wanted was to liberate women, Pete, but we wouldn't let them. Except that I never said anything like that at all. We were talking about Osama was motivated to knock our towers down because of our bases in Saudi Arabia. So this is a complete red herring. It has nothing to do with it. So he challenges me with that. And I just, you know, is that what yeah, you, you think? said? No. And I said, no. What I don't know what's the point of that, but I shouldn't have let him go there. I should have kept talking. Stay on the subject. We're not talking about the Taliban now. We're talking about why Al-Qaeda attacked the United States of America and get back and beat them over the head with that more. And because the truth is, as I've explained a million times, they've been attacking us all through the 1990s. When Ramzi Youssef tried to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993, which, yes, the CIA, you know, helped them into the country and the FBI could have stopped the attack and failed to prevent it. But anyway, Ramzi Youssef wrote letters to the New York newspapers explaining why he did it. And it's bombing and blockading and starving the poor Iraqi people and supporting Israel in their violence against the Palestinians and the Lebanese. And it's the same motive all throughout the 1990s as they attacked us over and over again with the, the Kobar Towers attack and the Africa embassy bombings and the USS Cole and all this. And I brought up the CNN interview from 96 with bin Laden, but there's also all of his interviews with CNN, with ABC News, with Abdelbari Atwan, with Robert Fisk. He says the same things over and over and over and over again. Bases in Saudi being used to blockade and bomb the Iraqis, support for the Israelis and their oppression of the Palestinians and the Lebanese, support for dictators around the region over their people, uh, preventing revolution against them, um, and uh, pressure on those dictators to keep production high and prices artificially low to subsidize our economy at their expense and turning a blind eye to Russia, China, India, and Uzbekistan in their crimes against Muslims as well. He claimed he'd care all about human rights, but whenever these countries are attacking Muslims, you don't have anything to say about it. And that's always a great segue into the Clinton years where that last point ain't right. That Bill Clinton backed Al-Qaeda against the Serbs, the Russians' allies in Bosnia and in Kosovo and in Chechnya, which is the most important one. And there, the Clinton government was paying for Yeltsin and Putin's entire war against the Chechens at the same time the CIA and the Saudis were working to back the Chechens against them. Got to keep a pipeline from running through there, you understand. And so if that comes at the cost of anti-American terrorism, or eventually, um, and, and uh, anti-Western terrorism and benefits for Osama, then tough. In fact, I just interviewed Colleen Rowley, who is the lawyer for the FBI office in Minnesota, who could have stopped the 9-11 attack if they'd been allowed to do their job. Remember, Zacharias Musawi didn't want to know how to take off or land, only how to fly a plane. And the people at the flight school called the FBI. They were terrified of this guy. Called the FBI and the FBI agents on the scene. They were smart about it. And one of them on the team even speculated in writing, I think this guy might want to try to crash a plane into the World Trade Center. You know, it was, again, the most obvious terrorist target in America at the time. And and Rowley told me, and this is from this from 
September 2021. People can go look in the archive right now. It's right near the top of the list at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And she says, one of the reasons that the supervisors said that they weren't interested in this was because the obvious tie, the information that they had on him that tied him to the Bin Ladenites, it tied him to the Bin Ladenites in Chechnya. And the consensus in D.C. was we like the Bin Ladenites in Chechnya. So this isn't alarming information. This is not a good enough reason to get a FISA warrant and crack his computer open. And if they had, they'd have been able to trace him directly to the uh, lead hijacker's cell in Florida at the time, as we all know now and as the official story even admits at the time. And I tell you what, go listen to that Colleen Rowley interview. I'm like, hi, Colleen. How are you doing? Man, she's not doing well. <laughs> she goes off for like 20 minutes before I even asked her another question. You know, like, let me tell you about what's on my mind, Horton. And yeah, boy, is that worth listening to? I'll tell you. Um, and so, yeah, anyways, um, and then he changed, he tries to change the subject to the Taliban and women's rights. And the other thing that I, wisdom of the staircase thing is I wish I had said there, you know, no education for women is going down, but I bet you there are going to be a lot fewer boys raped to death by the warlords that our government has put in power there all these years. And people want to, you know, people love to pretend, especially these hawks, they love to pretend that the people that America's empowered in that Afghan war for the last 20 years are a bunch of angels. And the truth of the matter is, Pete, that women and girls living in the north of the country in the big cities have had it much better than under the Taliban and much better than they're going to have it now in many ways. There's no denying that um, in terms of education and opportunities for employment and right protections and everything else. At the same time, though, 70%, the super duper majority of the country don't live in big cities or cities at all. They live in small villages or, you know, out in the countryside, the super majority population of the country. And they never had access to any of these gains. They're far more likely to get bombed by the Americans than uh, given an opportunity to go to school by them. There's an incredible article by Anand Gopal, who wrote the wonderful book, No Good Men Among the Living, about the war in Afghanistan. And he's got this great new long form piece that came out a couple of weeks ago in the New Yorker magazine called The Other Afghan Women. And this is the guy who gets on a motorcycle and goes down to the Helmand province and talks with them himself. And and it's just incredible, man. I mean, you got to read. And the lady's talking about, you know, the the dozen or so. She just rattles off in a row, like 12 or 15 different names of different young men that she's known who've been blown up to death for no reason whatsoever in this thing. And there's rattles them all off. Well, there's my brother and there's my cousin. And then there's my, you know, uh, stepbrother and his son. And then, and just on down the list, just everybody in the neighborhood, every family has lost somebody. Everybody has lost somebody to these prowling robot assassins. And just this absolute dystopian nightmare. It's just absolutely crazy. And then as Ann Jones, the great journalist told me, um, she wrote about this back 10 years ago, that uh, by her count, the number one priority of the Afghan National Police was chasing down runaway women and girls and bringing them back to their masters, whoever they were. And, you know, even the, the parliament that America had installed in power in Kabul had passed a law a few years ago that I believe that they repealed finally under pressure that said that men have the right to starve their wife to death if she refuses them sex. And this kind of thing. So, you know, they want to pretend like, oh, yeah, no, everything was great. And now everything is going to go back. 
that that's not right. There have been some gains for some people in some places. Meanwhile, the entire nation has been under a bombing campaign for 20 years, in the middle of a civil war for 20 years. And yes, the Taliban side of the violence is absolutely criminal as well. They use suicide tactics against innocent civilians and you name it. You know, I'm not taking their side in this thing at all. I'm saying, you know, they played their half, their role in making lives miserable for people all over that country as well. But for him to pretend that they've just gone from from paradise back to hell is just not true. And, and you know, read Gopal's book or read my book, Fool's Aaron, and learn about who these warlords are and the crimes that they commit against these people. And seriously, never mind uh, Gopal's book. Read that New Yorker piece, The Other Afghan Women, where they talk about the worst, absolute worst warlords that they hated, that the Taliban had come and saved them from. The Americans came and put them back in power over these people. It was just sickening, man. What do you think he could have done better to prepare? I mean, to make it even close, to make it so that, you know, I mean, it looked like, I mean, I, I was using the word platitudes like during. I'm like, he's just spouting off platitudes. It's just, he, he's, I guess he can't bring up facts because facts are his enemy facts yeah, are no, no. Yeah. <laughs> but i mean was there anything he could do to prepare for this that could, could have made him at least look a little bit better than he was than he did well that's a good point i mean uh, i would say that it yeah oh i think i already said this i think i had predicted talking with you about this back two years ago he's not even going to google me is he in the, he's not yeah. going to look this up he's just going to walk right in he's not going to prepare at all so check this out hold on oh, hold on Okay, so I just put out episode six, 639 of my podcast. Mm -hmm. Episode 309, you came on to talk about your future debate with Bill Crystal. That's how long this thing has been sitting out there right. waiting to happen. Right. So remember, we were it was right around this time in 2019 it was announced that it was going to happen in May 2020. And then of course that all got canceled. And then, um, you know, Gene tried to get it done in the spring and Crystal was overcommitted in the spring and couldn't do it. And then Gene said, well, how about the fall then? Find me a, someday in the fall, you can do it. And they settled on October the 4th and I said, fine with me, let's do it. But yeah, so it's, he's had two years to just figure out, you know, and I, I told Gene at the beginning, I was like, man, are you sure about this? Because I think there's at least a real good likelihood, right? I don't know that he assumed that we're talking about the other Scott Horton is probably <laughs> the only Scott Horton he's ever heard of. Who's he's a good man. He is, but he's a member of the council on foreign relations and he's a lawyer from Patterson, Belknap and Webb, which is an extremely powerful law firm in New York. He's a professor at Columbia university. And to me, he'll always be an anti-torture hero of the W Bush years. He just did absolutely heroic journalism during that time. Uh, horrible on Russiagate, but whatever. I love the guy anyway. It'd be like if you were horrible on Russiagate. Well, I still love you, Pete, but God dang, man. Get your head together. Um, <laughs> but but look, I mean, the other Scott Horton is a gentleman. He's a professor at Columbia University. I'm not. <laughs> and so I told Gene, like, geez, I don't know, man. It's almost false pretenses, but I mean, the mistake would be his. And Gene told me, look, I told him it's Scott Horton, the author of Fool's Hair and Time to End the War in Afghanistan. He's got Google. 
you know, he doesn't want to take the responsibility to do the slightest bit of diligence here. And it could be that he doesn't even know who the other Scott Horton is, right? It could be that he was just, you know, he's going up against some guy named something and it doesn't matter. And he's just going to get up there and say, we've been at peace for 75 years. And <laughs> like he always does. And then that'll be that. So, um, but like, so how better could he have made his argument? I don't know. I think actually, you know, what you call platitudes, you're right. And in a sense, like the best he could say is like, well, think how much worse it could have been, right? But he is right in a sense that like just to say, hey, on the face of it, we haven't had any nuclear wars. And as bad as things have been, it is pretty easy to imagine them getting worse. It well, he also did say that we hadn't. He also did say we hadn't had any attacks since 9-11. Yeah. Oh, that's another yeah, one I didn't you get a chance to address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I had that all in my notes, too, because I was going to say, yeah, if you don't include Fort Hood and Orlando and San Bernardino and the attempted attack in Times Square and over Detroit, you know, on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bomb and all of these things. And also, if you don't include Manchester, England or Brussels, Belgium or Paris and Nice, France or any of these massive attacks. And, you know, or, or in Germany, the massive uh, hatchet attack on the train in Germany and all of these things. So, um, yeah, that's another thing um, that I didn't get a chance to say. But, um, but you know, on, on like keeping the peace in Asia, right? Like this is Andrew Basevich talking. Basevich is like, we ought to get the hell out of the Middle East. But Asia, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it'd be better for us to continue to stand between China, Japan, Korea and Taiwan. Because I'm afraid if we end the status quo there, that as the balances of power shifts, that there could be real problems there. I'm just not that worried about it, frankly. And people say if we leave there, then necessarily South Korea and Japan and maybe even Australia would get nuclear weapons. And that that would increase you know, the chance of war there. But I don't think that's necessarily true. There are all kinds of non-nuclear weapon states all across the planet who have rivalries with nuclear weapon states of various degrees. that doesn't lead them to jump straight to nukes. And I think there's still plenty of room for diplomacy by us or our other friends in the region to say that, like, listen, Japan, you can be a nuclear threshold state like you already are, right? Like Japan right now, they could make nukes in a few weeks, probably if they really needed to. They have the ability to enrich uranium. I'm, I don't know exactly, but I'm sure they have the ability to enrich uranium, certainly to produce, uh, uh, to weapons grade, I mean, and, and certainly to produce plutonium and, and do the separation or whatever. If they had to build a new factory to do the isotope separation, they probably have it done in a few weeks and, and uh, could make nuclear weapons. But that's in itself a deterrent, right? Like, you know, don't mess with us or we will. It's like having bullets in one pocket and a gun in the other. You could have a loaded gun, but you know what? This is an okay deterrent too. Like it is a real gun. And these are real bullets. Don't make me load my gun, dude. You know? Mm -hmm. And I think if if that's Japan's stance, well, that's Iran's stance. It's kept America out of Iran for 20 years, Pete. Is don't make me start to do the thing that you know I know how to do, but haven't begun to try to do yet. You know? So I think that makes perfect sense for Japan and Korea to stay nuclear weapons threshold states. And um, and I think all the hype about China wants to conquer the world and all this stuff is just crazy who thinks china is going to try to invade japan you know what i mean i guess you can make up scenarios well they're gonna economically blackmail them into what i don't know nothing stopping trading with america or something no 
and what all these all these nightmares are just fantasies is what they are um so um you know i can i, can I bring something up sure. um i thought you made some really good points about whenever neocons bring up hitler and um you know they talk about minimizing you know minimizing the holocaust by right saying there was a holocaust and everything you talk about that and what you um you know how you argued that one sure and in fact if i can get my brain to work right there was an extra point there that i thought of today that i should have made as well but essentially you know he continually makes this argument that america's kept the peace in the world this whole time and then yeah you know we made some mistakes in korea and japan i mean korea and vietnam and then so I'm counting them up that like, no, man, actually, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of lives, you know, not in the same time span, but really more than a Holocaust worth of innocent dead civilians at America's hand in the time since World War II, which, again, admittedly is 75 years. But still, we're talking about some brutal atrocities here, absolutely legendary atrocities that he just completely discounts that just don't matter to him at all. And I'm not trying to sound like a PC wokist, but it it kind of is the unavoidable question. Do only white European lives matter? It's just a remainder. It doesn't count when you kill 2 million Koreans or 3 million Vietnamese, you know? Um, and um, so I said, it is. It's a Holocaust worth of people. And then he said, that's trivializing the Holocaust. And then I said, well, I think it's trivializing the Holocaust the way the U.S. government and the way the American hawks constantly invoke Hitler as the excuse to attack everybody who's nowhere near Hitler, from Manuel Noriega and David Koresh to Saddam Hussein, the Ayatollahs, Kim, or even as H.R. McMaster just a few weeks ago was saying for Donald Trump to have negotiated with the Taliban is the same thing as Neville Chamberlain uh, going to Munich and making peace for our, all of our time uh, with uh, Hitler after the... Um, the uh, annexation of Czechoslovakia. And so, um, you know, uh, that to me is trivializing the Holocaust. And I mean that, right? That like, you know, these guys will, they'll push your Holocaust button. They'll push your Hitler button to get an emotional reaction out of you. And they do say this, right? He's a Hitler. That was H.W. Bush said that about Saddam Hussein over and over again. Of course, that was why after we beat him in Iraq War One, then we couldn't bring him back in from the cold. He's Hitler. So now we, you know, we had to tell you all this BS to get you to support the war. Now we have to keep up a cold war against him until he dies of old age or until W. Bush gets elected and starts the war back up again. Because we said he's Hitler. So now we can never negotiate with him again. We can never talk to him again. We can't sanctify and, 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 uh, and legitimize evil by meeting and talking with it and all of this stuff. Well, it's just crazy. Saddam Hussein again he did commit horrible war crimes when he was america's client but especially by the late 90s and the bush years he was the analogy is far closer to tony soprano than joseph stalin right i mean the guy was trying desperately to hold his power together meaning his full-time job was appeasing his own people different powerful factions in his own country marrying people together, marrying companies together. Just, you know, again, with the Sopranos reference, there's a great book by uh, Scott Ritter called, uh, forget which one it was, um, Endgame, about Iraq, 
where he's still saying this is when he was still much more of a hawk but he just does a great job of describing iraqi political society during the 1990s and you know the idea that this guy was a threat to anyone is just completely crazy i mean other than iraqis is just completely nuts and even at that point he wasn't a threat i mean look even the premise of the no-fly zones right was we have to keep these no-fly zones to stop him from massacring all the shiites and the kurds but he wasn't massacring all the shiites and the kurds before iraq war one right he was massacring them during the insurrection when they rose up after iraq war one at george hw bush's instigation to try to overthrow him but then of course hw bush legendarily changed his mind stabbed them in the back and let saddam hussein keep his helicopters and tanks and crush the insurrection but once the insurrection was crushed it was crushed then they had to pretend that what he's gonna just murder every last shiite in the country and so we have to stay for another decade to keep him from doing that it was a total lie the whole time it was a lie um so uh yeah anyway i'm sorry what's the question oh um shit i don't remember <laughs> maybe one of these guys is less of a stone than me um it, i, I, I have no idea anymore oh yeah we we went way off on that one um that oh come on chat room boys help us out here man <laughs> let's what are y'all less stoned than me and less drunk than oh him? well we were talking about the we were yeah right uh, we were talking about um uh i hope that that would be good if the chat was less and less, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. um maybe maybe i'm uh assuming all the much. all the hitler comparisons Oh, the Hitler. Yeah. So, yeah, you know what? Somewhere in, in my lost train of thought today, Pete, I had come up with another Hitler angle that I meant to say about, you know, you know, to turn back on him about diminishing the Holocaust thing. I can't remember what it was anymore. I was hoping it was going to bubble up while I was rambling about the other thing um, about, you know, the way they always bring up Hitler for everything. But there was something else about that. I can't remember. But I'm going to write an article like this, our discussion right here, all the things I missed, I wish I'd said, the lies he told that I, I didn't have time to confront and whatever to kind of catch up. I'm going to write an article like that over the weekend to run on antiwar.com or maybe okay. next week to run at antiwar.com to try to fill in these gaps. So maybe I'll maybe I'll think of whatever that that uh, secondary point was then. I'm sorry. What, Wes, Wes is asking in the chat about what was the question you wanted to ask him. I think it was the Reykjavik thing, right? Yeah. No. So. Oh, no. What was. OK, go so this is um this is the story of the end of the show of the end of the debate okay so i go up there to do my final statement i asked him so do i get to ask him a question but the thing was i didn't want to ask him um you know like a debatey rhetorical question to provoke the guy um in fact originally i had written it more as just an insult because i knew the answer was no anyway but then I actually was not going to ask it that way. I was going to just be sincere about it. And then at the end of my thing, when I wrapped up and I, you know, talked about Somalia and whatever, which you're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to recap. You're not allowed to like bring up new points, but I didn't know that. Tom told me that later. I'm not supposed to do that. Oops. Anyway, at the end of that, I still actually had time. And I wish I had had my thinking cap on. I would have gone ahead and asked my question then. And even better, man, I would have been able to say, to him, if I'd really been paying attention and, and thinking on my feet, that look, Bill, you just said you're anti-war now. 
I'm really glad that I defeated you so badly in this thing that you now call yourself anti-war. That's <laughs> that's a win over Bill Crystal. He's going, look, I'm anti-war by the end of thing. But look, and I was going to say what I would plan to say before that anyway was, listen, you know, obviously you're a hawk and you have a reputation as a hawk, but you don't have to be a hawk on everything. And of course, he spent the whole thing kind of backing down and on on a lot of this stuff, or you know, halfway backing down um, on the individual uh, wars. Um, and I was just going to say, listen, you have you're so prominent, and particularly in Democratic politics now. And I wonder whether I could, you know, ask you just, you know, think about later. You don't have to answer now or whatever. Just think about this later. That whether you might consider calling for an end to the war in Yemen. It's the worst war going on in the world right now. And it's directly benefiting Al-Qaeda. And if a guy like you, who's a former hawk, would say, listen, you guys know me. I'm all about national security, but this one is wrong and we shouldn't be doing this that that could really help, you know? And and so would you please consider that? That's all I'm saying. You know, the war in Yemen is it's really bad and it could really move the needle. It could really, you know, and then the way I was going to ask it originally was, and then that way maybe that could be the first step on the beginning of redemption for all the harm you've caused to all these innocent millions of people and blah, 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 right? That's how I was going to say it originally. But by the time it was time to really say it, I was going to drop all the snark and just say like, hey, please. And then, so at the end, when I finished my statement and then they, you know, read off the winner and everything, then I followed them because I wanted to ask the question just backstage. And I was definitely going to drop all the snark part about redeeming yourself and all of that crap then, you know, when it's not for show at all, that just to say to him just completely sincerely, that like, man, this could really, you know, raise this issue's level of prominence by quite a bit and having bill crystal the famous hawk himself say we really should end this now that could be really meaningful you know so i followed him and i said and you can see in the video he takes off you know and i go kind of chasing after him and and i go wait bill can i ask you a question and he goes yeah sure but he keeps walking down the stairs and towards the curtain out toward the crowd and the door and i don't want to ask him in front of the crowd of everybody the point now we're backstage right so I go, well, wait a second. And he goes, no, I don't think so. I got a plane to catch and I don't think I owe you another minute of my time. When and, you know, went running through the curtain and out the door. And I just went, oh, oh well, you know, boo-hoo. That was my chance. And really I blew it because I should have just tacked that on to the end of my closing statement and asked my question anyway. And I didn't think to do that. So that was my one last woulda, coulda, shoulda, wish I'd said type thing there, you know. Um, but he wouldn't have done it anyway, man. So what the hell, yeah. you know? When did you write the Trotsky line? Um, I think that's. I, I think that was not in. I'm, I'm, I'm virtually certain that was not in the type text. I think I jotted that down in my notes the morning of, or maybe it was the night before. I was kind of rereading it and was saying Lenin and Trotsky, and then. It's funny because I did not, I was not thinking about that at the time. And this was also, you know, on my assumption that he's going to bring up World War II and then I got to bring up World War One and how America's intervention of World War One, whatever. And then I'm going through the thing. It's, it's a great book. People should all read this book by Jim Powell, Wilson's War, about how Wil uh, Woodrow Wilson, how Woodrow Wilson's great blunder led to uh, 
Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and World War II by uh, Jim Powell. Excellent book. And um, so uh, I wish I had cited it actually out loud in the thing. I should have. But, um, you know, the story is there that Wilson essentially gave a Lend-Lease type program to Kerensky to bribe the interim government. The original Russian Revolution was in March of 1917. Right. And the commies didn't take over till October. And Woodrow Wilson gave the guy a bunch of money and fuel oil and trucks, and I forget guns or not, but enough equipment to help and, and millions of dollars and convince Kerensky to stay in the war. And I even learned this in, in I think, junior high, elementary school or junior high, that, man, the Russian people were so anti-war by then. And that was Kerensky's big mistake that and it helped undermine support for him. Like, I think that's the official history everybody knows. But then it also meant that the soldiers weren't there to protect him. They were all far away. And then and it provided this time. And as Powell documents on their fourth try, Lenin and Trotsky seized power in St. Petersburg. And so um, I had already kind of had that written for like, OK, if he brings up World War II and I have to say it in the rebuttal, kind of here's my my points I want to make sure and make kind of thing. And um, then I was just reading over that and Trotsky jumped out at me and I remembered Eric Garris telling me from antiwar.com tell me listen don't just go all hard on the trotsky thing everybody says that like and i and i i can't remember i think i had a different reference to trotsky that i had cut for time um earlier going through editing or something and and um anyway so i was just going through there and i saw that and i just thought oh you know i could just add it as a little aside there you know no offense my only regret there is i said no offense when what I should have said was no offense so that you can hear, you know, still on the microphone. Yeah. yeah he didn't, he didn't notice. I don't think he noticed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, for the audience or whatever, and I should know that as a radio guy, you're in your microphone, you got to go like this. You move your head to the right when you look to the left, you know? So, um, but anyway, I'm glad I got that. And I, and I can't wait till tomorrow morning when the HD version of this comes out. I know I'm sure there are going to be some hilarious screenshots of my face just absolutely cringing. There's already a couple of me going, oh, when he's saying we never intervened in Syria or whatever it is, you know, but I want to see, you know, his face. I hope the reason cameraman got some good screen, or, you know, some good shots of his reactions to some of the things that I was saying, you know, because the, um, you know, I think he was trying to be pretty poker face, but I think he kind of can't help it. You know what I mean? When it's just a barrage of accusations, the way I was leveling them. You know what I mean? He must have been uncomfortable there. There was a part towards the end. I think it was right before the closing statements that um, when you watch it back, you both look at each other. Like you're both sitting down and you both look at each other. And um, yeah, it, it looks like daggers are being shot at oh, one that's point funny. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are you going to do? I, I'll tell you what, when, when Gene started reading the results, I thought he was saying that crystal won, which I knew was like kind of a possibility. Cause when you have the super duper majority of the people already agree with you, then you kind of have nowhere to go, but down from there or something. Yeah. But I remember yeah. thinking like, Oh man, I thought I did okay, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I was like, well, I guess you won. And then Gene's like, wait, 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 no, no, no. On the other hand, though, you know, yeah, your numbers went up, but Scott's went up much higher, 
or much more 12 points yeah. to your two or whatever it was landed so, in um, the landed in the comments is saying he loved the think tank funded by arms manufacturers line oh, yeah. and he said that he definitely believes that crystal felt that one yeah i bet and I did. I, I accused him of that a few different times where I was talking about, like, even the inflationary money that like all those checks he was cashing. They never even raised his rate in the top bracket. Like, I'm just assuming that I'm making up shit in the top bracket. They never even raised his tax rate a minute to pay for this war. They decided to borrow it all from China and print it instead. You know, he's you know. So, yeah, if you if you run think tanks are my arms manufacturers, you're doing great. The economy's doing great. And you don't know what else what else, what anybody else is complaining about. You know, why would you? The guy's completely recession proof, you know. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah. I'd like to know, man, somebody some good journalist should look up his um, his salary at his various think tanks that he runs, the foreign policy initiative and these other things. You know, I bet you he makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year every year this whole time or more, you know, millions even. Well, um, you know, it's really hard when you look at somebody who I, I'm not going to say that he's evil. I'm going to say that he just stands for things that turn out to be really friggin destructive for human beings all over the planet. And it's really hard not to attack somebody like that personally. And um, you, you had your digs in there, but I mean, it wasn't like you were up there calling him the worst kind of person on the planet and that takes right. a lot because someone like me who's just wants to hit him and you know just run up and punch him in the gut you know it's like yeah. you know and he, well you look treat, i decided before like yeah like I, i'm not allowed to bring a knife to the thing and just fight the guy so you know the format is we're wearing suits and ties and it's called a debate and it's hosted by my friend Gene, who's asked me to come and have an argument. So, you know, I can only go so far. And in fact, at Freedom Fest, Gene kind of pulled me aside and said, remember, listen, I know that you could do a whole bit. You could do your entire bit could just be about Bill Crystal. But the question is, is regime change good for the United States or is it not? Not is Bill Crystal right about things or is he not? You know, so just stick to the point and win the debate on the question, is regime change good for America? And that's solid advice. I'm glad I took it. And I did I did rewrite what I had written uh, two years ago, which I hadn't even looked at in quite a while. I went back and looked at it and I, I saved some pieces of it, but I mostly threw it out and started over to really try to stay on topic. And then, yeah, like you're saying, I want to get in my Trotsky dig here and my think tank, you know, paycheck there. Um, but, you know, like I could have said, the, the Afghan war and the surge, which he supported, and the war in Libya, which he supported, and the intervention in Syria. You say you never heard of it now, but you supported it then and whatever like that and go down the list like that. But one, I didn't want to do all that homework and make sure, you know, triple check on everything, although I'm sure he was for Libya, you know, I don't know. Um, but, um, but then again, you know, that really wasn't the point. And it was funny, you know, like I asked, I asked Tom Woods and Peter Van Buren, for a little advice like okay so here's what i wrote what do you guys think of you know and you know i have to correct my grammar but just you know on the overall theme of how i'm approaching this argument and both of them's advice was get him scott kill him you know go after him just give him just go down the litany of his failures and lies and bad predictions and all those things and um i decided not to do that you know it would be well like you're saying right like 
would have changed things. And I, you know, the, there's a lesson here too that I learned from, and and I ain't attacking my buddy Dave, but I'm just saying, my my best guy Dave, who I love, uh, Dave Smith, went up against Nick Sarwak, who I don't love, and Dave was right about everything, and Sarwak was wrong about virtually everything anyway. But I thought Sarwak won the debate. And I've told this to Dave before. I don't mind saying it. he don't mind me saying. It. I thought that Sarwak won the debate only because Dave was too mean to him. And Dave is a cool guy. And Sarwak is a dork. And the it didn't really matter the substance is what they were saying as much as like the scene on my screen is a cool guy picking on a nerd. And ruthlessly picking on him. Now, if you know the backstory, you know he kind of had it coming. And that, you know, there's, there's more to what's going on here. But just like in the overall scene, yeah. And the same thing here. I'm cool. I fucking skate Bert, dude. And I'm up against Bill Crystal, who is a dork, right? Who is a nerd. And um, and I didn't want to just get up there. And here's a guy who's lied us into war, right? Who is the single, the man outside of government, most responsible for Iraq War II, right? He did not work directly for W. Bush. He was running the Weekly Standard and blabbing on Fox News at the time. But he organized PNAC and he, you know, organized with AEI and all of these guys and really got the neoconservative movement and their act together. Justin Raimondo called them the little Lenin of the neoconservative movement. So the whole move to push us into war with Iraq, it was the axis of crystal. This was the guy, you know, and um, so uh, sorry, I forgot what the hell I was going to say about that. We've got to do this show earlier in the daytime, man, when my brain still works. Um, <laughs> What were we talking about, dude? You're just talking about being a not being mean. Oh, not killing the guy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Anyway, just point being, I can only be so mean to him, and I didn't want to overdo it. Like I wanted to hold him responsible. I want to say the Weekly Standard said Saddam was friends with Osama, was you know lied us into war and all this stuff, not let him get away with anything. Blame him for you know yeah. This is why he picked Sarah Palin to convince your uncle Bob to stay pro-war when he should have been over it by then. But gee, if Sarah Palin says so, then I guess we'll stay on this train another four years or eight years, you know, and that's what they were going for with that. So I didn't want to let him off the hook, but I didn't just want to mercilessly beat him. You know, like, look, I I guess and people react like I did beat him, but it wasn't all about what he said this, he said this, he claimed this, he predicted that. I didn't want to frame it all that way. I just wanted to say the regime change wars have not been successful, man. They've been absolute disasters on their own terms from, you know, the ones that he specifically was, you know, the leading champion of like Iraq War II to, you know, all of them, all the rest of them too, which he at the very least went along with and supported, you know, like in Libya and Syria and the rest. So, um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm glad I pulled that off. I mean, I, um, I think I told you um, there that uh, I get a lot more nervous when I go on the Kennedy show and hopefully that's going to wear off. I keep trying to remind myself every time I go on there, when I'm actually looking into the camera, ready to go on, I'm fine. That's fine. You know, but oh man, the whole ride in the truck on the way up there or, you know, down to Austin to, to do the show and all that. I just, I get freaked out. For this, I didn't feel that way. I really did not feel that nervous going into it. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe just because I had had two years 
of like stressing myself out over it and then calming back down again to like, you know, it kind of just worn off or something. But I was feeling that pressure that like, man, I better not let the boys down. You know, everybody's telling me, get them, Scott, kill that son of a bitch, you know. And Caitlin Johnstone, like six months ago, was like, you must ruin his entire life forever. <laughs> Nothing short of that will do, you know, and just so, you know, I, I would have really regretted if people had said that, like, yeah, you did pretty good, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the stakes were higher than that. I needed a real win, but I didn't want to like sabotage it by like overly brutalizing the shit out of him where. Right. Like if I'd been too mean about it, he might have just given up and left halfway through. They're like, OK, this isn't really a debate. You just came and wanted to talk a bunch of shit. So screw you, kid, you know, kind of thing. So I didn't want to like give him an out either. So anyway, I hope I calibrated it about right there, you know. Cool. Well, we're over an hour. Anything else? Anything you want to end on? Man, I'm going to be in Syracuse, New York in November. I'm going to be uh, in Lockhart this uh, for Texans at least, or people with a lot of airline miles. This weekend, I'm going to be in Lockhart, Texas. Uh, on Saturday, I'm doing an event with Renegade University um, and uh, Best Barbecue in Texas. And that's a no lie, dude. Black's Barbecue in Lockhart is the best brisket you can find in the world, man. So I'm on my way down there. And um, so that'll be fun. And then, um, uh, yeah, other than that, check out our institute, the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. And um, and my show, uh, the Scott Horton Show, and uh, read my books that are about the wars. Some people like them. Hmm. And I don't know, you tell them about your stuff too, man. Free Man Beyond the Wall. What's that? Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. And um, yep. I have a sub stack. The, also, Monopoly on Violence. If you got oh, yeah. Amazon Prime or you got Amazon... Go check out that documentary. There's a um, good five-minute speech on the Middle East wars in there that Scott does. And uh, a lot of other good people in there. Dave's in there. Tom's in there. If there's yeah. somebody you can think of, they're in there. Great and uh, yeah, we did. That, that turned out well. And yeah, just tune into the podcast. I appreciate everyone. Cool, man. And yeah, look, the Libertarian Institute's badass. We got a ton of great writers. We got a ton of great... Um, you know, all of our, our main team, uh, which is what, five or six different original podcasts mm -hmm. um, from there. And plus the great uh, Connor Freeman and Lori Calhoun and all of our great writers, uh, Kim Robinson, the great Australian MMA champion and all these other great people that write for us. And um, we are soon. So get your pens and your checkbooks warmed up. It is almost time for us to launch a new fundraiser at the Libertarian Institute. And I'm not exactly it, sure the date on Bitcoin, that. It's going to be within a couple of weeks here, I think, to get going. Those, those Bitcoin millionaires need to step up a little bit. That's exactly right, man. We accept all kinds of cryptos. And all that's at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. We're going to get that thing really going in full gear here. But we better strike while the iron is hot and people are still excited about what we're doing. So uh, I think, Josh is I, asking I what you're going to be doing in Syracuse. Uh, I don't know exactly what it's a libertarian party event. I should have said that it's a libertarian party, uh, uh, state convention or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. So I'll probably be giving my same old speech on the terror wars. Um, okay. Exactly sure. But, um, so that's, uh, the beginning of November 
And then, um, man, I thought I had one more thing to say, but I can't remember. So I guess that's it, man. Oh, I know what it was. Tomorrow morning, Reason Magazine will be posting the good version, you know, the edited high def. That basically, there's a bootleg out now. That's the the live stream video, but there will be an edited HD version. You know, the Reason Magazine professionally produced version will be coming out tomorrow morning. So that's the one everybody forget you ever saw the old one. Take that one and help make that viral. Let's get that out. And wouldn't it be funny, Pete, if Bill Crystal has a million followers on Twitter, if every time he ever tweeted ever again for the rest of his life, the first comment was somebody posting the link to that video. I'm getting stomped in the ground for being more responsible for the rise of Trump than any other man in the country as he rails against him, you know? Yeah, man, that would be sweet. Wouldn't it? All right, boys. Well, thank you very much for watching, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, LibertarianInstitute.org, ScottHorton.org, and and uh, and uh, what's your substack? Pekinyanos.substack.com. All right, kill by it. any by any memes necessary. Come on, that's a great name. That's a great name, man. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thanks.